0: Three things to keep your eyes out for. The first, God shows us what it's like for him to love us. The second thing is God loves us covenantally. We'll talk about what that word means. Third thing, God loves us in spite of what he knows about us. God loves you in spite of what he knows to be true about you. Let me pray. Father, you spoke through your prophets throughout the generations, throughout the millennia, and you've been speaking ever since through your word, which is living and alive and powerful and fruitful. It returns, uh, it does in us what you call it to do in us. So I uh, I would ask you, Father, knowing that you are wanting to do desires and delights to talk to your people, that tonight you would open our ears, tonight through your spirit, you would talk to us, you would change us, you would show us Jesus. We're at all different places over the map, but not one of us is in a in a, in a pristine place, not one of us is in a place of just buoyant faith, we all come limping into this room, and we need healing words uh, from the one who can heal us. So we pray for that tonight, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am pretty sure you've heard of the phrase method acting. It's a kind of acting that actresses and actors do that acknowledges Sometimes you have to live something yourself. You have to experience something yourself, taste it yourself before the dots connect and you understand the story or the character that you're trying to live out. Some celebrities are famous for being method actors. Um, I mean, uh, Christian Bale uh, method acts in almost every movie he does. Old actor Adrian Brody, Daniel Day-Lewis in movies like Lincoln and The Crucible. And Shia LaBeouf is a, a method actor too. And if you saw the movie Fury a few years ago, where he's a World War II tank crew member, uh, he method-acted his way through that whole movie. He was given an interview in this magazine, and he said the day after he found out he got the role, he legit enrolled in the National Guard, he becomes somehow a chaplain's assistant and gets deployed, and he's living in the Middle East for a month at a forward operating base— uh, and he takes it further. The, the character that he was playing in, in Fury was a devout Christian. Shia LaBeouf was not a devout Christian, but he became a devout Christian at least for a few months. To the point that Christian blogs were like, oh my gosh, Shia LaBeouf's a Christian. He's a believer. Can you believe it? He gets baptized. He goes on late night shows talking about his conversion. Later, none of it true. He was, he was fully inhabiting the character and the story of the guy he was playing in that He had a tooth pulled because he, want, he, he wanted to live the life of his character, and his character was missing one of his front teeth, so he got rid of that. He said, quote, I took a knife to my face so I would have real scars. I don't know what this has to do with the movie, but he said I watched horses die for a whole week. And he said he didn't bathe for a whole month, which should have gotten an Oscar for his supporting actors and actresses in a hot tank filming all day long with Shia LaBeouf unbathed for a month. That's method acting. It's an acknowledgement that you have to fully enter into something and you have to live it and you have to experience it for yourself just to know what the story really is. Just to know how to accurately portray your role. And it's it's one thing to have head knowledge about something, right? And it's a whole other thing to have experiential knowledge of it. Just that second nature sense of what's going on. You know this already. You get it. I mean... I thought I knew a lot about dating. As an intern, I would sit across the table from a lot of people and dispense just dating advice from on high. Then I started dating Anna and I realized, oh my gosh, I need to like call all of these people and apologize and I need a counselor. (laughs) I thought the same about marriage. I thought I understood. I thought I had a pretty good theology. I did, I mean the theology was true, but how to deploy it, how to live in it, I was clueless. And even this morning, we have a little, a moment where I have to go to Anna and apologize for something I said and did to her. Basic elementary things I'm still trying to learn. Seven years in. There are things you have to live and experience and taste for yourself before you'll know what they really are. Here's an interesting contrast if you were here for the Jonah part of this series. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah, rise up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and say, speak, communicate, teach, announce. Forty days and Nineveh is overturned. Repent. That's not what happens with Hosea. The word of the Lord comes to Hosea. And as the Lord begins to speak to Hosea, he says, go, go. And marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. He doesn't say go and talk, go and speak, go and share, go and teach. He says go and marry and have kids. Hosea is a prophet just like Jonah. Jonah's ministry was through his words. God speaking to him. Hosea is a prophet that God is speaking to us through his life. Not so much his words but through his life. And so Jonah's private life becomes public ministry. And Jonah lives in a glass house now. Hosea lives in a glass house now. His most private, gut-wrenching, painful, excruciating, confusing, sleepless nights in his marriage are on a piece of paper that you can read tonight. The, 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 The days, the nights, the weeks, his heart was ripped out of his chest as his children were strangers to him. Strangers living in his own house, wanted nothing to do with their dad, repudiated everything about him. That suffering is on a page for you to open and read. God, in a sense, was coming to Hosea and calling Hosea to method acting, except it was just the metaphor breaks down because it wasn't acting. It was real. Gomer is a real woman. These are real children. These are real people that God is ministering to through Hosea. And so Hosea's life is now a lived out demonstration of what it's like for God to love us. Let's pause and ask a question. Who does this? Like from God's point of view, do you have in your mind a sense or a suspicion that God's up in his like, Bark a lounger in heaven and he's like elbowing jesus and the holy spirit saying hey watch this get a load of this hosea Go marry a shady lady. Go marry this promiscuous woman And have children with her Is this a capricious kind of a an indifferent thing that like the greek gods of the pantheon would do these weird errands? They would give to man and women we know it's not because whose script does God give to Hosea and say, live this out? F- inhabit this story, live in it and experience it, taste it. Don't teach it. Don't, there's not a script. There's not a speech for you to go give. Live this, do this. Whose life, whose character was Hosea playing as it were, living as it were? God. God is giving pages out of his experience of relationship with his people. And he's calling a prophet to go and live his life here among us that we might experience that and taste it and know it in a lived experiential kind of a way, not a lecture speech kind of way. God is, in a sense, asking Hosea and through Hosea, he's asking you to walk a mile in his shoes God is asking you in the book of Hosea to walk a mile in his shoes as he does relationship with us. With Israel, with the church, whatever you want to call the people of God, the names are synonymous and interchangeable. As God does relationship with us, as he loves us, as he pursues us, we walk a mile in his shoes. God wanted Israel and he wants you to know what it's like for God to be in a relationship with you. Which raises another key question. Have you ever thought of that before? Have you ever thought what it's like for God to be in relationship with you? I have not. I think a lot about what it's like for me to be in relationship with you or my wife or my kids or a boss And I do some fretting about not wanting to know what you think it's like to be in relationship with me because I'm scared you might tell me things I already know about myself that I hope you don't see. But I don't know how much I think about what God's experience of relationship with me is like. Have you? Perhaps deeper, do you care? Do you care what God's experience of relationship with you is like? This gets hard to hear. There are certain people in our lives that we care when we hurt them, right? could be a mom or a dad or a best friend or a mentor, and you misspoke something or you did something. You, you dropped the ball. You did something stupid. You, you might have just blatantly sinned against them. People that you love that you know you hurt, you pursue after that, and you say, I'm so sorry. I, I, I hurt you, and it hurts me to know that I hurt you. And then there's people that you might find out they're miffed with you or pissed at you for some reason. You might have done something, they misheard something, and you're like, whatever, they can deal with it. I don't care. You know? What does that reveal about your heart towards that person or your relationship with that person? That there isn't a relationship. Maybe a mere acquaintance. So the question gets put before us in this passage. Do we care? Does it hurt us? that we have hurt God? Does it bother us that we have bothered him? It reveals the extent to which we love him and care about him. Before we get any further in this passage, in a sense, we've got to hold hands and kind of say in unison, not literally, if you're new, (laughs) this is rhetorical, in a sense hold hands and confess lord i do not love you the way i thought i loved you i do not care for you the way i think i care for you this book is an invitation for you to be honest about that this this book this prophecy is an invitation for israel god's people to finally be honest that we don't love God the way we think we love God. Israel thought they loved God. You know, this is the book if you heard the phrase God saying, I did not desire sacrifices and rituals but mercy. It's from this book, chapter 6. Israel was doing all the right stuff, all the boxes got checked. If Israel was your buddy, you would not know anything bad was going on, really. You might be a little concerned, but not to the point of an intervention. Israel said and did all the right things, but at the the depth of it, Israel did not love her God. And the question comes for us, do we love him? Do we care that we have heard him? And so these are hard things to look at. These are convicting things. But if you are willing to begin to be honest about this and you're willing to begin to admit, perhaps this love that I say I have for Jesus, that I have for God, is not what I think it is or what I say it is, then at least some good things are going to happen in the next few weeks. You're going to be able to resonate with Gomer a lot more, who represents Israel, who represents the church, who represents you. And you're going to be able to have not anymore a one-dimensional view of God's love for you, a childish, infantile, um, just simplistic understanding of God's love for you, but your understanding of his love for you, his patience with you, his endurance with you, the complexity of his relationship with you will become three or four or five or a hundred dimensional. That's what's in store for you. If we can begin to be honest, that perhaps our love for him is not as strong as we thought it was and say it is, or even think it is. Why does does God want to show you what it's like to love you? Why? Why? Why do we need to know that? Why is this book in our Bible? Why do we need to see a lived-out experiential example of what it's like for him to relate to us? Why is he showing this through Hosea's life? In cases of just blatant infidelity, a husband or a wife goes out and sleeps around on their spouse, oftentimes what you will see when they're confronted, when they're you know brought before whatever, the family or before the church, often what will happen is the, per, the offender, the person who did the sleeping around is incapable of caring. It's just numb. There's an incapacity to understand the ripple effect, the damage, the pain that they've caused on the other people. You can, you can talk about, and some of you, this is very painful stuff. Some of you are the children Where this has happened in your families or a divorce has happened and you felt that dad, mom, I'm dying. What you did will be with me the rest of my life. These cuts hurt and you just didn't see much empathy from your mom or your dad. And part of it is they couldn't empathize with you. Sin hardens us. It makes us incapable of understanding the pain that is inflicted by our actions. We can say the right things. We can say, I'm sorry. We can say, I know I've caused hurt, but we don't feel it. Here's the dilemma that we're in. What if this is true with us and God? What if we can say the right stuff? I'm sorry, but we don't feel it. Well, God loves us even in this point because he says, well, what if you walk a mile in my shoes? What if I, what if I invite you in and let you look at our relationship from my point of view? And what if you get to walk down the road in my skin, as it were? And this is a glimpse of what I think God is doing through Hosea and his family. And he's saying, have you ever considered what, Israel, have you ever considered what your idolatry is like for me? Have you ever considered what your running is like for me? Have you ever considered what your disinterest is like for me? We need to be careful here. There is a sense in which you can be hearing me and have a deeply sentimental view of God, like he is a hurt teenager, unrequited love, and he's just kind of coming back, pretty please, please love me again. Or that he's sitting here wringing his hands over this. That is never how God is depicted in the book of Hosea. He is in control at every single twist and turn. He calls the shots at every twist and turn. He is sovereign in every twist and turn. But he, in this just unbelievable, unexpected way, allows us to see him in a way that I bet you don't think of seeing God in this way. He allows us to see him almost on our terms, in a human way, affected, bothered, hurt, victimized by what we've done. Again, not in a sentimental way, but in a way that is trying to help you and me apprehend who we are. And who he is And what makes this relationship work Before we push on I want to humanize this a little bit more Frederick Beekner, guy I quote a lot Wrote a book called Peculiar Treasures He has uh, kind of his, his kind of Retelling of this story I want to tell you half the story now And half in a few minutes when we close He says, Gomer was always good company She was a little heavy with lipstick Maybe A little less than choosy about men and booze A little loud but she was great at a party and always good for, a lo- for the laugh. And then the prophet Hosea came along wearing a sandwich board that read, The end is a- at hand on one side and watch out on the other side. The first time he asked her to marry him, she thought he was kidding. The Second time, she knew he was serious but thought he was crazy. The third time, she says yes. He wasn't exactly a swinger, but he had a kind face. He was generous. And he wasn't all that crazier than everybody else. Besides, any fool could see that Hosea loved her. Give or take a little, uh, she even even loved him back for a while. And they had three children whom Hosea named with weird names like not pitied for God will no longer pity Israel now that it's gone to the dogs. So that every time the role was called at school, Hosea would be scoring a prophetic bullseye in absentia. But everybody could see that this marriage wasn't going to last that's Hosea and Gomer. That's this man's life now. That's Gomer's life now. This is not a speech. This is a biography. This is a diary. The second point is not just that God wants us to see what it's like to be in relationship with us, but that God loves us in a particular, peculiar kind of way. He loves us covenantally. i Bet you money that's not popping up in your devotions or your prayers or your intimate warm moments with God. Thank you for loving me covenantally, God. It rarely pops up in any of our conversations. What does it mean that God loves us covenantally? This is a crude definition, but it's what I say at weddings sometimes, that what a covenant is, is a leash. You are leashing yourself to a person. You know, there's that kind of horrible saying of like, man, this guy or this girl's a ball and chain. It's a similar idea, except it's actually life-giving and freeing and beautiful. Because when a man and a woman stand in an aisle and exchange vows and they covenant to each other, they are leashing themselves to each other and saying, Anna, wherever you go, I go. And Anna says to me, Ben, wherever you go, I go. If it's poverty, I go with you to poverty. If it's sickness and cancer, I go with you to sickness and cancer. If it's public humiliation, I walk with you through Humiliation. If it's the worst darkest days of depression of your your life I go with you there come what may. I'll tell you one thing that's certain about your future. I'll be there. That's a covenant. It's a contract, but it's so much more. What I just shared with you doesn't sound businessy does it? Doesn't sound contractual. It is a pre-commitment not knowing the future. It is a it is a A certainty now. All of the other variables in your life might be up in the air, but one will not. I will be who I will be, and I will be with you, and I'll be for you, and I'll help you. That's what it means that your relationship with God is covenantal. God has leashed Himself to you if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand what God is holding forth in invitation to you is not, let's casually date. You know, we can be like little buddies where when you need me, you come and get me. When I need you, I come and ask you to do something. And he's not asking to be friends. That metaphor is not in the Bible. He's not even really asking to be family. What he is saying, what he is proposing is marriage. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your husband and you will be my wife. That is covenantal. And that is what he has proposed To humanity, which means this. I'm just using me and Anna as an example because I wrote this sermon and she's here. Here's what this means when you look at a husband and a wife, for example, Anna and I, terribly, terribly, terribly imperfect. But when you look at us, your relationship has more to do with what you see between me and Anna than it has to do with your best friend on the planet. And it has more to do with a student. A teacher relationship, more to do with a, a, a master-servant relationship, even a father-daughter, father-son relationship. When you see a husband and a wife who have said, come what may, I will be there and I will love you and I will cherish you and protect you. Even if it means for 10 or 15 years we work through hell. You have seen in that moment something that approximates more closely than anything else your relationship with God, which is a marriage Secondarily, I think we can say when you see a dad with his kids, a mom with her little ones, you see God with you as well. That metaphor is present here, too, with parents and their kids. But first, it's husbands and wives. What else does it mean that is covenantal? Really quickly, God initiates this marriage. It's his proposal. It's his idea. Countercultural thing to say in the southeast of the U.S. God initiated marrying you. He initiates relationship with you. He makes the first move. We are not as free as we like to tell people. We are bound up in our selfishness. We are bound up in our lack of love for him and our lack of love for other people. He must make the first move, and he does make the first move. He initiates this relationship. We often think, when he initiates, when he moves towards us, we often think, it's because I'm wiser than all my buddies. We don't, we don't say that out loud, but we, there's a little piece of us that thinks like, I had great parents. Or I've been, I've been through you know, the furnace of affliction. I suffered when I was a kid. I had to raise my siblings. That's why I know my need of God. That's why I get this spiritual stuff. That's why I'm wise and mature. We always think there's something inside of me that got that twinkle in God's eye. It caught his eye. And he said, oh, look at you. Well, aren't aren't you amazing? I'm going to go, I'm going to give some grace to this person. He says the exact opposite. Deuteronomy 6, God is wrestling with his people and he's saying, no, 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 this is why I love you. This is why I chose you, Israel. For you are a people holy or set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be my people, my treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you, And chose you because you were more numerous, better looking, bigger, stronger, more holy than all the other peoples. For you were the fewest, the littlest of all the peoples on the earth. Here's why he loves them. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the covenant that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery in Egypt. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. Why did God choose you? Because he chose you. Because it delighted him. Because it pleased him. That's what Ephesians 1 is all about. You will never get another answer other than that. The answer is always in him and his character and his love, never in you and in your character. Why does God love you? Don't search yourself and don't be despaired when you don't see reasons in yourself of why he would ever love someone like you. Look at him. Study him. And you'll begin to know why he loves you. The reason of his love is in him. He initiates this relationship. It's a marriage. It's covenantal. He doesn't have commitment issues. He's not indecisive. He's not wishy-washy. He's not feeling one way about you one day, and then the next day he's like, actually, I don't feel that anymore. You have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, who has married you, who has said... We have a standing appointment next Tuesday, next December, and in 30 years, I will still be your God and you will still be my son, my daughter, my wife, and I will still be God to you. That's what it means that God is covenantal. Lastly, before we get to this last point, covenants come with mutual vows, right? When people join churches, you hear it. It's happened pretty recently here. Noah, you joined the church here a few weeks ago. There were There were vows or questions that he had to answer, and the church vowed to Noah, too, we'll support you, we'll we'll care for you, we'll protect you, and he had to say that to the church. Anna and I, anybody who's been married has had to exchange these vows. There's mutual responsibilities. When there's a person in a relationship that that over the course of a lifetime stubbornly refuses to repetitively refuses, refuses, refuses to love the other. There is a breach there. And if you're wondering what all was going on with this stuff with his kids, my goodness, name him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again, and the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel. And then lo Uh, And then lo on me, not my people. What's going on with that? Does that negate everything I've just said? The way you understand those things is is a generation in Israel that refused repetitive, 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 repetitive prophets, tenderly and bluntly calling them to turn and come back to the Lord. It's like Jesus said in his generation over Jerusalem, 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 how I long to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you would not come. He is not saying once for all Israel is cut off. The very last verse says that's not true. Yet the Israelites will be like the sands on the seashores, which cannot be measured or countered in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they'll have one leader pointing to Jesus and they will come out of the land and great will be that day. God is not cutting them off permanently, saying to this generation, you have refused every advance. You have refused every opportunity to repent willfully, high handedly, without a thought. And he's saying when he says you are not my people, that's not so much a pronouncement as an observation of what's already true. God was no God to Israel. Functionally, they were no people to God. These are also probably illegitimate children from Gomer. Jezreel is a child of Hosea. lo and lo rumah are, are children of infidelity. Gomer sleeping around. And so there's a literal element to this too. You are not my people. God loves us with a covenantal love. And the last point that we end with is God loves you in spite of, of what he knows about you just got to say this philosophically god is not wondering who you're going to turn out to be if you play that out in your mind that's not a god who's worth worshiping who's waiting on the edge of his chair to figure out what you're going to do next right you should stop worshiping that god if that's the conception you have god is eternal he has no past present or future he is all places at all times in fullness he is sovereign he decrees what happens he doesn't wait to see what happens So when I say that he loves you in spite of what he knows about you, it's not like tomorrow you're going to do something else and he's going to be like, okay, whoa, that was was a stretch too far. God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And all that he knows about you, he saw before he moved towards you. He read the fine print. He checked under all the stones. He analyzed it all before he moved towards you in love, before he called you to himself, before he proposed to you, he knew what he was getting into. The reason that Nathan read the NIV, Hartson and others, just kidding, but not really. <laughs> the reason he read the NIV is because the word here, promiscuous woman, is often translated prostitute. If you have an ESV or another Bible, it might say harlot or whore or prostitute. The word that is there has more of a sense of promiscuous, When Hosea marries Gomer, it's not so much that she was a prostitute that a prophet of God is told and commanded to go marry. Gomer was a shady lady. It's like Tim Keller being told to marry a Kardashian. None of you are going to think that's going to go well. All of you are going to be wondering, why, Tim, this is not going to end up well for you. Back out now. Her heart was bent away from Hosea from day one. She said all the right things. They had beautiful honeymoon photos. But she was was in love with the world. She was in love with what was going on in the 750s. She was a woman of her culture, a woman of her times, a pluralist. She was fine with love triangles, love polygons, whatever you want. It's all of these other lovers. She is unimpressed by her husband nonplussed by him. That's what it means that she's a promiscuous woman. Hosea is commanded to covenantally bind himself to, leash himself to a woman who runs around the block on him. Hosea knew what he was getting into when God told him to go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. God knows what he was getting into when he decided in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you would be his. And he knew what had to be done to make you his. Romans 5, we talked about it last night, Madeline did in freshman group. Paul says, while you were yet weak, Christ died for you. These are verbatim quotes. While you were still ungodly, Christ died for you. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were still unreconciled, Christ died for you. While you were still an enemy of God, Christ gave himself for you. Did God know who you were before he moved towards you and saved you? Yes. While you were still filling in any blank you want, he knew what he was getting into with you. And so he is not going to bail now that you have discovered more of who you are. He has known all along, and it's why he moved towards you in the first place is that you needed him. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, at that point made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Friends, if you are struggling to believe that God loves you, here is a tangible thing you can do. Begin to shift your eyes off yourself. And all of the reasons inside of you why he shouldn't love you or can't love you. And lift your chin up and start looking at him. And you will find in him, in his love, in his character, in his reputation, in his patterns, in his essence, you will find reason and reason and reason that he loves you because he loves sinners. And he loves the ungodly and the weak and the unreconciled and the far off and the alienated and those who are not his people. He makes his people. This is a God who marries promiscuous people. And it is through their marriage to him that they become pure. We walk down the aisle with this God on our wedding day in a black dress. And at the end of our lives, we walk back out in a white dress. This is what Ephesians 5 says. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy. He did not give his life away because she was holy, but he laid down his life to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and presented her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but feed and care for their body just as Jesus feeds and cares for his people. Friends, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus fulfills both sides of the covenant and the vows. He fulfills God's side of the covenant. And then he steps over on your side of the altar and he fulfills your side too. That's why God loves you. Because of what God sent Jesus to do for his people. I told you we would end with the end of Beekner's description of this marriage. While Hosea was off hitting the trail, Gomer took to hitting as many night spots as she could squeeze into a night. And any resemblance between her next batch of children and Hosea was purely coincidental since they weren't even his. It almost killed him. He tried locking her out of the house a few times when she wasn't in by five in the morning, but he always opened the door when she finally showed up and he helped her get into bed uh, if she couldn't see straight enough to get herself there. Then one day she didn't show up at all. He swore that this time he was, he was through with her for keeps, but of course he wasn't. When he finally found her, she was lying passed out in a highly specialized establishment located above an adult bookstore. And he had to pay the management plenty to get to let her out of her contract. She'd lost her front teeth and she'd picked up some scars that you had to see to believe. But Hosea had her back again, and that seemed to be all that mattered. And he changed that sandwich board that he was walking around in earlier to read God is love on the front and there is no end to it on the back. Let's pray. Jesus, this stuff is not normal for us to hear. It does not fit what we believe to be true about you. It is wild and it is undomesticated and it is not familiar to us that you would love us like this, that you would be a husband like that who, when we run, would go run through the rain, through the town, finding us and bringing us back. We confess that we do not love you the way we think we do, but we confess that you do love us the way you say you do. And that is our hope, and it is our anchor, and it is our rock, and it is our life. And we pray that that life, you would just breathe into it more and more in these next few weeks. Be with my friends and me in the time in between and minister to our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen.